Welcome to Essential NOLA Cinema, a podcast where me, Randy Mack, a New Orleans filmmaker, talks with a cinephile about a New Orleans movie in terms of its relevance to future productions, um, what it says about the time it was made, its history, and, and so forth and so on. Um, I'm pleased today to bring on a man who, who popped my podcast, Cherry, as the first podcast I ever guested on was his, <laughs> and now he's my first guest on the first podcast I've ever hosted. So, Mr. Greg Tilton, how are you, man? Hello, thanks for having me on, Randy. It's uh, known you for a long time, and I'm surprised you didn't do this sooner. So I'm excited to see the conversations you have. You've always got the brutal yet very much needed advice in the film community, and I've always really respected that. Oh wow! I hope, uh, yeah, brutal. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll have to work on that. I guess. Oh, I mean that with all love, man. I love the support of artistic communities, whether it's podcasting or filmmaking. Everyone's really like, you got out and you did it, and. Everyone should be praised for going out and doing it. Like, that is a huge step. But you also got to get some people to tell you the things that you did wrong, because I guarantee you, you did things wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hard on myself, I guess. Uh, it's, it's, a, um, it's, the, it's the kind of thing we should always be thinking about the next thing and always be working on improving and learning from what you've done. That's the whole point of the podcast is actually to, to get people inspired and thinking forward about how they can apply the lessons of uh, in this today's episode, Looper, um, Ryan Johnson's 2012 sci-fi film, which was shot here and in Napoleonville, um, is, a, is a great example of a sort of template filmmaking where you could, there's a lot to apply to um, projects moving forward. I think uh, Greg chose this one. I think it's a, uh, an awesome choice. It's one of my uh, favorite films of the last decade, for sure. Uh, what led you to choose it? Well. One thing that made it stick out to me was, one, it kind of, in some ways, is the script, what happens if you go back in time and kill Hitler? <laughs> it kind of, in some ways, is like playing out that in a very real way. <laughs> yeah, if, you're, if and, you happen uh, to be Hitler. <laughs> exactly. And, but what I really like is this film, for one, I just love hard sci-fi. Looper has a number of problems, as any major film does, but ultimately... I love to see the lingo, you know, or rather I want to hear the lingo. I want to see mm. your vehicles. I want to see your drugs. Like I want to <laughs> see all the little details that make your sci-fi world different and imaginative. I just love hard sci-fi. And the other thing that made it stick out to me was when we were kind of walking through what films to do, you said you wanted stuff where you could take a lesson from. And the fact is, aside from some like really interesting prop work, a lot of the effects in this movie are incredibly rudimentary. Oh, They're totally. just executed in a clean way. And so it's one of those movies you can watch it and go, I want to do that. Mm. And you can. Yeah. And I think that that kind of makes it stand out for me. I had the same response uh, watching it last night. I, was, I actually watched it twice. I was blown away by how very simple and effective and low cost. Basically, like all the expensive stuff you see on screen is uh, in the streets just to sell this yes. world the vehicles have been modded a little bit but in not not ways that would um break the bank it's not like star wars level design they're just tacking fins and things onto existing vehicles kind of almost mad max style but what really sells the futurism of the world is the jargon they use the um which is incredibly cheap that's the screenwriting you have your your new drugs which are eye drops which are just shot beautifully which is just also screenwriting and, and some nice cinematography you know, that, like they go inside that nightclub in the beginning of the movie. There's nothing in the nightclub futuristic. There's no tech in there at all. But it feels like the future because of the slang and the lingo. And occasionally somebody who's levitating a nickel, which is, uh, you know how they did that? <laughs> I, I, I watched all the supplementary materials. The Anybody floating a coin was actually done with strings on set. There's no CGI levitation in there. They just simply erased the strings later. Because they wanted it to move like a physical object in reacting to wind and air and stuff. And they found that none of the CGI was right. So Ryan insisted that they, uh, they just do it on set that day, you know? Exactly. It underscores that point. Like, they're using string for the coins. And even just the time travel, they just poof, bang, kill them, right? Yeah. And it's just a simple plate. I mean, that's a really, like, very basic, the very beginnings of filmmaking they were doing that. That is something literally anyone can do with an iPhone. The jump cut. Yeah, the jump cut yeah. invented in 1884 or whatever. 
You know? yeah. <laughs> turn the camera off, put a guy in frame, turn the camera on, boom. Editing. Yeah, couldn't be more basic. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's, it's very uh, low budget. Um, you know, even for a modestly budgeted film. I never did figure out what the budget was on it. I think it's $25 million-ish. I think probably most of that mm-hmm. above the line going to Bruce Willis. And I imagine the below-the-line costs are probably in the 5 to 10 range. Uh, That's what I was going to say. A movie like that, you've got Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and uh, why am I blanking on her name? Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt, thank you. I mean, that alone is just going to chew through budget. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, JGL was uh, in a weird place in his career because he was budding but he hadn't made inception yet mm. brick was oh five and um he, he was still you know five or six years before like don john and falling in with the whole uh chris nolan gang did you notice that um looper has several cast members from brick in it as well as inception inception also has the same three cast members from brick <laughs> that's kind of funny that is and also he had those uh, interesting – well, maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I remember watching it and going like, man, he looks really different. What is up? And then I like Googled mm. it and it was, they had these prosthetics to make him look like Bruce Willis a little bit. Yeah. A little mixed results. I'm, I'm not quite – That's very generous of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be kind. For me, <laughs> so, it's, the, it's, the, it's the biggest failing of the movie um, that those prosthetics – It's unnecessary. It's both unnecessary and distracting, but it also it's really inconsistent from shot to shot. Um, it goes anywhere from an A minus to a D plus level um, execution. I think it's the lighting at the end of the day. That's on my rewatches mm. last night. I decided this is a lighting problem because um, some of the deleted scenes he looks actually like almost dead on perfect, and then a lot of the huh. takes that were used in the final film he looks terrible, and um, and it and it's and it differs drastically it's it's a really weird thing it's almost like maybe they got better over the course of the production and that's always one of the dangers um but it, it's yeah i don't think it was necessary either because you know bruce willis has a broken nose from his um bartending days i think that's the story he um and that very distinctive profile that almost dick tracy like shaped schnoz <laughs> is um could easily be the result of a fight i mean you see him getting in all kinds of skirmishes the guy's an assassin for christ's sake so it's like it would make sense that at some point in the future he got his nose broken it don't you don't really have to you know use prosthetics to that extent it also covers up the actor's kind of natural expressiveness um yeah and stuff and if you see the guy get hardened over time i mean there's a moment in that when they when the movie jumps into the parallel timeline, goes to China, and we see him age up, and then suddenly he's got the long kind of gothic haircut, and then he turned, Bruce Willis turns around in the same haircut. And that never worked for me. Even in the theater, I remember thinking, ooh, that, that's, a, that's really rough. Especially you can see that, where the rough. hair plugs meet his head in the shot, which is also a lighting thing. Um, they could have hidden that a, a, quite a bit better. You know the story about how they went to China? No, I don't. It's a very, very interesting thing. It's it's very much a, a taste of maybe the future of filmmaking. This is one of the first examples of this. There's a company, I think it's called DGE. Is that, so mm-hmm. are you familiar with Todd Gardner and his uh, movie-making podcast? Todd Gardner is an executive at Paramount. Uh, sorry, he, he used to be an executive at, at, at Disney, at Touchstone Disney, and then he became an independent producer with a deal at Paramount. And uh, he has a podcast called... Um, the producer's guide. I listen to way, way, way too many filmmaking podcasts. And Todd Garner um, uh, started doing a whole um, series of essentially like pandemic episodes, just talking through professionals in the industry about what the future of the business is going to be post-pandemic and mm-hmm. what aspects of the business will survive and what you know possibly won't. He talked to the executive at DGE who worked on Looper and. So the the story of Looper is that it was financed by Endgame Productions, who had also financed The Brothers Bloom, uh, which is the Ryan Johnson movie he made before. Johnson only actually still has only I think five five movies, um, which is really shocking to think about because he feels like such a big figure. But he started with Brick. Brick was his like half a million dollar micro budgeted um, film and t- came out in two thousand five. But he spent the better part of a decade working on it. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars. It's a film noir set in high school. The Brothers Bloom was his follow up. It's Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo as brothers pulling off cons. And then Looper was his third film. And then The Last Jedi and now Knives Out. So that's that's his whole filmography. Um, 
and yet it seems so much more formidable than it than it really is. Um, and so anyway, he um, he gets this film financed. They they sh- they raise the money and shoot it without a distribution deal, without any studio backing or, or a sense of where it's going to go. They uh, gets picked up in post production by a company with an output deal through Columbia TriStar, basically. So so while he's in the financing stage, basically he's written this whole thing. You know how the character is trying to you know, learning French. And and uh, Jeff Daniels is kind of like, he's like, I'm from the future. Learn Mandarin. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, There's a great line. Basically telling him, telling him exactly what to do. He's like, I'm not supposed to tell you what's coming in the future, but I'm literally telling you what's coming. Learn Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the, they knew the movie was being shot in New Orleans, so they were going to shoot Paris in New Orleans. Um, and what the financiers came to them and said, listen, we got a, some of our foreign sales money. Um, basically the, the company was, uh, in the black up, even before the shoot began with foreign sales. Um, but he said, our Chinese people came to us and they said they can actually throw in quite a bit more money if you actually shoot in China and make it a co-production. And, and so they simply, according to the, the commentary, um, Ryan said he, all he did is went to the script and changed the slug lines didn't change the character names or anything. And um, and they were able to spend two weeks in Shanghai shooting on location. <laughs> it is an amazing story. And you get to hear the other side of that in Todd Garner's podcast. I'm looking it up right now. It's the um, Chris Fenton, Feeding the Dragon, April 16. Chris Fenton was the executive at uh, DGE at the time, I guess. And uh, I just think that story is fascinating because it's, um, for, for starters, the idea of shooting New Orleans as Paris actually makes a lot of sense. Sure. I've got a screenplay that's set in the uh, Belle Epoque era of Paris, and um, I have this idea I could shoot it like Guy Madden style in New Orleans. It's like one of those things as a filmmaker, you get a little bit of uh, encouragement in finding that uh, one of like a really established filmmaker has had a similar thought process to you at one point. Uh, so that's how the whole Shanghai section of the film came to be. Um, it was a combination of uh, um, foreign money and doing co-production. And of course now... There's like Chinese content is a big deal in the in the tentpole area, but uh, you know Marvel movies and so forth often do um, a lot of shooting there because it's the fastest growing filmmaking uh, population in the in the world. You know, 1.3 billion people. According according to this Chris Fenton interview, the number of theaters in China like it went from 2,500 in 2010 to 75,000 in five years. Jesus Christ! Yeah, it's that kind of market. My brother always says, um, he always says, to give you a perspective of how big China is, he's like, China has a population of 1.3 billion people. The U.S. is the 0.3. And so he always <laughs> puts it, like, we're like an afterthought as far as, like, population is concerned. <laughs> we're a rounding error. Exactly. T- uh, t- tell me, uh, you know, watching Looper again, did you see it in theaters when it came out? I can't remember. I think I did. I know I, I obviously saw it before we did this recording. I'm like 90% sure I saw it in theaters because I just, like I said, I love hard sci-fi. And even as I say hard sci-fi, this thing's kind of a blend of hard sci-fi and action flick, like summer action flick. Yeah, almost almost but, like a gangster noir kind of kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 the softest version of a film I would call hard sci-fi, if that makes <laughs> sense, right? Reno's the biggest little city, right? It's it's very digestible. The rules are laid out very clearly, even if they're a little inconsistent. And, but the film like literally tells you what the rules are to a fault. <laughs> and then just a, does a it. scene in the diner where he's like, look, I'm not going to sit here and explain the rules. We'd be out here all day making diagrams with straws is like a line yeah. that killed in theater when I saw it. And it also was singled out by almost every critic that I read it's 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 a, almost a meta moment it's it's you know yes. it's almost a commentary on other time travel movies but it's it's a funny thing um when i dug into the extra materials and stuff there's a three minute deleted piece of that diner scene which is already quite long where he where the, apparently there was a, a punchline to that whole thing when young joe is confronting him about his memories and he's like so if i do something it creates a memory in you and and uh and there's a m- deleted moment where bruce Willis sighs looks at him and says all right give me the straws and he actually does a diagram but mostly <laughs> it's not a not exactly he's not like doing time loops or anything uh he's what he's doing is explaining how the memories work sure. but he ended up cutting it and i think it's a lot stronger for being cut yeah the film's pretty handholdy with that stuff like it it 
utilizing even inconsistent level of voiceovers, you know? So I think that that was probably the smart play. I mean, the ultimate basically you need to know that it muddies their memories. The memories are altered as the course changes. That, that makes sense. And you see it like it's expressed when he's sitting there going first time he met her, first time he met her, first time he met her scenes like that. Yep. It's funny how he was in the commentary. Ryan calls out the back to the futurisms of it. There's a, the whole locket thing. There's actually a deleted scene where the locket starts to disappear. I kept half expecting it. <laughs> which is just like the, the the Back to the Future photograph. And there's a Back to the Future 2 reference with, uh, I think there's some hoverboards in the background of the, some of the early CBD shots. There's also a deleted scene where they explain that the time machine is fixed in time uh, dur- durationally. Um, that's not even a word, uh, durationally. <laughs> but basically what it means is like, the film is set in 2044 and the time machine was built 30 years later, so it's 2074. And in, apparently, that what they do, what they figure out is that in 2074, they they can go back in time, but only exactly 30 years. And so, there's no adjusting. You can't go back 15. You can't go forward at all. It's a hard 30 year um, back thing. And uh, he ended up cutting the scene that explained that. Um, but it does make a kind of sense. You know what I mean? And it certainly simplifies the paradoxes, the possible paradoxes. Yeah, like, I was wondering, for instance, when he was waiting and Bruce Willis was delayed, I remember thinking, like, well, wait a second, if you're dialing in when to drop the person off, why does that matter? That doesn't make any sense It to makes me. no sense at all. No, it's totally yeah. totally illogical. Oh, no, it is logical if it if you can't adjust how far back you well, As I was saying, now that we know this deleted scene, now I understand it. But I was like, but that is one moment where I'm like, uh, that explanation might have helped. But at the same time, I also kept being like, you know... Every time travel movie just gets so ridiculously convoluted, especially when they try to explain it. And I remember even watching Primer, one of my favorite movies. I love it. Yeah, yeah it's it's look, you can get all day to like is it pretentious or not, whatever. But like at the end of the day, it's a very powerful film about relationships. Yes. And they get very nitty gritty with the time travel. And what does it do? It short circuits your brain in the end. Like you're ultimately <laughs> you're going, I. You have to watch it three or four times, not even because it's so complicated and heady. You're just going, okay, who is kind of Abe Prime and who's this and why is there this mysterious dude? Which guy am I looking at? (laughs) Yeah, it just gets so complicated and you need just a – you need a cork board and you have Dennis from – it's always sunny just going like, ah, like freaking out in the background, (laughs) right? (laughs) Primer is a a big inspiration on Laundry Day. Um, There there are all these fan sites for Primer online that were like – People attempting to find visual representations of that storyline um, in terms of all the prime and subprime and like characters moving mm. around in the same time space um, and how they're doing it. And like, there's so many ways to graphically represent it, and they're all mind breaking. Like, you know, <laughs> like I can hang on to comprehension for five minutes, and then as soon as I look away and look back, it's gone again. It's, it's just, uh, yeah. it's some next level complexity. Yeah. So Looper's just kind of like, yeah, we're there's all kinds of weird timey-wimey nonsense happening, but yes, you can alter memories, that's critical to know, and you know, you can change your course, your fate is not fixed, things like that. The conflict in Looper is really interesting cuz talk about a low budget concept. It's basically two men struggling for control of their own timeline, you know, their own fate. The struggle is incredibly lo-fi like Excluding the the sort of rampage scene at the end of the movie that Bruce Willis goes through to, to kill uh, everybody up to Jeff Daniels, it's um, extremely low body count. It's you know the the biggest weapon you see is is a handgun or you know at, or at one point there's a machine gun I guess but like mostly we're talking about low level person on person one at a time violence like it's it's not scenes of thousands or whatever um and yet it's really compelling because it's extremely interesting world building and very interesting conflicts and dilemmas for the characters to wrestle with even if you look at some of the like set pieces these are extremely affordable you know low budget uh set pieces the one that's probably the most creative and the one that really sticks with you is the death of paul dano um where they the older version escapes into the city and so they capture the younger version and just start cutting parts of his body off and you never see the butchering of the young one but you see the limbs disappearing off the older version that is one of the it becomes almost like a horror movie 
for those few minutes. It's like Cronenberg. <laughs> That's some serious body horror going there. Yeah, no, he's driving the car, his foot disappears, and he can't stop the car. And it crash. It's like, holy crap. Yeah, that's nightmarish. As I was taking notes, I kept noting that the genres kept shifting, which is become, has become a Ryan Johnson like specialty. The, the genres within genres, like the turducken genre mm-hmm. structure of uh, Knives <laughs> Out and so forth. But yeah, there's some elements where it really be- starts to become a horror film towards the end of the... And I thought that was uh, foreshadowed kind of nicely, even though it's a... It starts to become very unwieldy, so when Ryan Johnson joined Twitter, I had just joined Twitter too. This was around the time of Looper. Um, in fact, it was just after Looper. And um, somebody asked, what was your most exciting moment in the theater this year? And I tagged Ryan. And in my response, I said, it was watching Looper and really wondering how the hell he was going to resolve this story in any way that made any sense whatsoever. And then, And then when he did in the final 10 minutes of that movie, I remember like, like raising my arms in the theater like I had just witnessed like a goal being scored in the last seconds of overtime or something. <laughs> I was like, the kid pulled it <laughs> off. He put, he did it. It was amazing. Uh, and wanting to shout out with joy because I just thought it seemed like such a mess. There were so many things happening story-wise and leading up to the, the that finale that I thought there's no way he can pull this off. And then when the kid flips everything into the air and freezes them all. And then the way young Joe resolves it, I was just like, oh my God, this is so brilliant. And it's both, you know, it's that perfect, totally surprising and yet completely organic to the story, you know? Well, they bury the solution pretty early in the film, actually, during the diner scene. Um, he basically, young Joe, the young version of Joe says, why is my problem? You don't ever meet her, then she doesn't die. So I'll just avoid her. Right. And it's kind of tipping the hat to like, what I like is he, you know, he keeps going, you're so selfish. You're so garbage. You don't deserve her. Da, 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 da. But really Willis is willing to destroy all these other lives that he gets to experience her. So he's still this selfish person. And the only way to break the cycle is to get over his own ego, which he didn't do as an adult. You know, it's funny because the screenwriter in my head wouldn't stop trying to like fix things in the movie uh, last night. And the, one of the big moments was I love the, that, that dialogue in the diner about you're a, you're a, you've got a child's mind. He keeps telling him. Yes. And how selfish she is and stuff. And I, when he shoots himself, there's this moment where Willis hasn't disappeared yet. I wish there had been a, a close up on Bruce looking at him realizing what he's done and nodded like okay kid you've you finally learned like like i wish there'd been a moment of him recognizing that is that he's helped his younger self grow up you know hmm. because that seemed like the the through line the period at the end of that thematic story you know uh and and i i kind of wish that had been there but yeah let's talk about the locations because that's super fun i just drove down o'keefe street um coming coming back from the grocery store and stuff did you See the Rouses? I just got my co- coffee at the Rouses, and that Rouses is in the movie. Yeah, I made a few notes because, like, you specifically said earlier about how the set dressing isn't that complicated. And I really think a lot of this movie lessons can be distilled into looking at the locations and looking at the set deck. Because, like, right out of the gate, what do we see? We see the old Market Street power plant. Mm-hmm. We see the CBD side of St. Charles. You even see the Hibernia Bank topper which is always purple, green, and gold during Mardi Gras here, and now it's a horror show for a dystopian future. I mean, <laughs> oh, that where, where the billboard is? That CGI billboard with the TK ad? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And, like, it's just basically add a filter, a rusted car or two, and maybe a small trash fire. Baby, you got a dystopia. Yeah, no, like, <laughs> the CBD was really, truly under construction at that point. Was, um, I looked it up. The, the production began on January 4th, 2011. The CBD is, was an area of, like, abandoned warehouses and parking lots, just entire blocks that were just parking lots full of rubble, essentially. And in the last 10 years, it's been overdeveloped into, a like, a nightmare of condominiums and $400 night hotels. Even O'Keefe is, like, completely unrecognizable. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing to realize that basically they're like, we need a place that looks like a dystopian future. Oh, yeah, we'll just shoot in New Orleans. We won't even have to dress it. That's what Planet of the Apes did. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I, I don't. Uh, which one? The Dawn? The first one? I think it was, was it 
was it Dawn or Rise? I think Rise was shot here. Rise is the the second one with Jason Clark that takes place in the Pacific Northwest. I can't keep track. It all blends together for me. But they definitely shot a lot of it here. Dawn's the one with uh, James Franco and John Lithgow. Yeah, I know. The, I the titles all run together. They're very confusing. Um, but yeah, they, uh, the, the piece of O'Keefe they shot is I go down it like all the time, probably four or five times a week for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by the fact they didn't change anything at eye level. They CGI'd a bunch of stuff on the top, which mm-hmm. uh, Ryan says in the commentary were actually um, old school matte paintings that they superimposed, um, which gives mm-hmm. them a sort of optical look that's a little, that blends kind of more cleanly. doesn't look like it's kind of photoshopped on top. The early scenes where he's out in the cornfields and stuff, and then at the diner, and he's going back to the city. You really believe there's a city on that horizon, even though it's uh, clearly couldn't be there in in reality. And that's because they used, he used optical effects and not CGI for, for those things. So basically, he put things on the tops of the buildings. Where the club is is actually just a parking garage, and they just put an awning and a neon sign on the front. And then in the street, they put all these uh, modded vehicles, and then but made them junky, you know? Um, and basically, once you drive down that street, you get the sense of this world. You get a sense of where the tech is, that it's some kind of like massive economic uh, depression, but the tech has been sort of creaking along forward. For those who can afford it. <laughs> it's what um, a producer friend of mine calls the money shot. It's a shot where they show you something in a way that where, where you truly believe it, and then you don't really have to show it again. You can evoke it later and save a ton of money. That's what money shot means? Well, it's the shot where you spend all the money, you know. Typically, it's like a wide shot with a lot of characters in frame and a lot of vehicles and production design and a lot of depth and stuff. You spend a lot of money on one shot to sell it, and then you can have pieces and close-ups and stuff, and and, and just it's super efficient, cost-efficient. And I I love how all that stuff with Paul Dano and his frickin' that little moped he's, like, souped up and... All of that is just brilliant in terms of how to sell a future that you, you believe in incredibly efficiently without you know breaking the bank on it. Like, And then by going old school with the guns and old school with the, the jargon and stuff, they're using terms from the you know 1800s and stuff. It, it invokes this Western quality. I, it really hit me when um, the first scene of Jeff Daniels, he goes in, he, Jeff Daniels has this line, I cleaned you up and put a gun in your hand which is like straight out of Deadwood or something. Um, yeah. That, yeah, they're really going for a Western vibe here. Everyone, like, Kid Blue's wearing a duster, that kind of thing. And it's, uh, again, that genre of mixing. But, yeah, it's a great template. If you're thinking about wanting to do a, a high-concept, low-budget movie, time travel is a great way to do it. You can do the kind of primer-style thing where you have doubles of people because they're kind of coming back. You can do a looper-style thing where you have old and young versions of the same characters. You can, even the fly the Cronenberg from, from the 80s is um, relatively modest. It's That's simply one line item. But even the hardware is so interesting, right? Mm. Like Primer, they just have a big metal box, which was one of the most expensive props <laughs> they had in the whole damn thing. And then in Looper, it's just this rattle cage. And what do they do? They throw up a tungsten light, shake it around a little bit. Time travel. I mean, it's, <laughs> it is a $25 million movie. And that's how they, that time travel scene is all of 10 seconds yeah. And it's literally rattling a dude in a cage. It's not yeah. It's not special. I could do that at home. It's so unimportant to the movie that they, they wait an hour to even show you how they, they do it at all. Exactly. You can't get hung up on those things if they're not critical to the story. Yeah, exactly. And I love the idea of shoot, shoot, using the, downtown New Orleans as a kind of dystopia. Ryan says in the commentary that like they didn't add any graffiti. You know, <laughs> There's a flashback where when Paul Dano shows up in his apartment and says... They closed my loop and I couldn't do it. And he then we flashed to what happens with him. They actually shot that in a uh, place I recognize, which is which is the remains of a building that had a had a door but no roof, basically. And there's a there's a really interesting kind of reverse dolly where old Paul runs away, and he runs basically at the camera and then past the camera, but the camera's backing up, and they both go through this doorway and then the door slams on him, mm-hmm. which. Uh, that door slam bothers me a little bit because it, it doesn't make any sense. It's a bit – I noticed that Ryan was – he was really in love with people abruptly entering or leaving doorways throughout the thing. There's a several 
shots or there's Django Unchained style people getting shot so hard they like fly through a doorway like out of frame um which ha- which is one of the like least believable kind of dopiest gun fight effects ever like oh i will if i don't mind my interrupting i'm sorry you reminded me of this thing with the gun that drove me crazy with the blunderbuss where bruce willis it's kind of a funny it's a funny shot the wide where bruce willis comes up and just beats him up but like he takes a shot then doesn't take a second shot but later when he's fighting people you see him unloading the blunderbuss so like I never understood how Roosevelt had time to close the gap and not just get blown away by a second shot. It's it's um it's a buy. It's one of those things you can question it, but like the the script really needs you to believe it. Yes. There's a couple ways they they try to sell that moment. Um, first of all, you see it from Bruce Willis's perspective. They do it as a wide oneer later when they when, yeah. they when his timeline comes back. It's a you know you're right. Not having a second shell loaded is is kind of nuts. Um, but they do. There's a sort of interesting social hierarchy where the gat yeah. kids are much cooler than the loopers and they say that he kid blue tells him says something like um yeah you can't hit anything past 25 yards and you can't miss anything b- below 25 yards with those stupid blunderbusses so i think the idea is that the blunderbuss is really just it's almost like data entry for the assassin world it's uh it's the lowest skill like available. All you got to do is point it vaguely in the direction of the guy and shoot him. And so you don't need more than one shot typically because they're already bound. I mean, you got to believe that he can cross that distance. He, also, that he's going to throw the bar like perfectly. That was funny. <laughs> that like like everything has to go exactly perfectly, or like nothing works in that in that plan. It's it's very strange. Um, it was a little nitpicky thing. I just felt like I had to point out. I was a little, cause it was striking later. I watched him unloading it into the concrete to make a smoke screen. And I was like, wait a second. I thought these guns were like slow one shotters that like totally violated what I thought was the case, but I it, it's nitpicky and you're right. It's one of the things where you go, you've already accepted so much. That's what you're going to get hung up on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, file it under a uh, questionable, I sort of I didn't buy it the first time. The first time you see it from the point of view shot, it definitely looks crazy because it looks like Bruce Willis teleports sure over to him. But then when you see it in the <laughs> wild, you're like, ah, okay. <laughs> I think they must have cheated the distance a little bit. It's but it, yeah. There's a there's a bunch of stuff like that in the movie. I think there's stuff like that in every Ryan Johnson movie because he's so singularly fixated on pulling off the big scale thing that he often lets little there's little writing bits that are that you just have to accept or there's, you know, or you're just out of the story completely. Uh, and he's, he's very good at making them fly by quickly and so forth. But uh, it's almost like as a screenwriter, he's, he's thinking in terms of, of modes and genre conventions and thematic through lines a lot more than airtight plot logic, you know? He's he's figuring the joy of the film is going to come from all these other areas, and that you can that if you're enjoying it, you're you're going to forgive uh, these little skips that he that you have to do in the in the logic in order to sure. take you to the next beats and stuff. Like for a great example is that when Emily Blunt shows up an hour and fifteen minutes into the movie, and the whole <laughs> movie just goes into a like a new gear that wasn't even on the table where suddenly it's rural and slow, and it's about a mother son relationship and there's a, it seems to be a whole new genre completely, and you don't even know what genre it is. It just seems to be in a, a different world almost. <laughs> and eventually it all pulls together. But uh, I remember in my notes I, I I realized that really great scene where the kid starts to get upset. He, she, they're doing multiplication tables, and the kid starts insisting that 8 times 3 is 32 or whatever. That it can it becomes so legitimately scary there like that scary kid thing. well it reminded me of twilight zone the i'm gonna send you the cornfield yeah kid. yeah the mother is terrified of their child and she goes and literally locks herself in a safe <laughs> <laughs> i uh i got a fire starter vibe out of it that's about a father raising a daughter who is super powerful and basically it's about being afraid of your own child and <laughs> Emily Blunt sells that so incredibly well. Um, that whole sense of like, I don't know what this kid's capable of. You know, every tantrum is potentially life threatening. Yet it's a mystery in this case because you don't r- really know. It's actually funny because um, 
it's almost like a dry run for Star Wars. That you know, there's a lot of Star Warsy things in there, and he suddenly realized like, oh, Looper was kind of like an audition tape because you see so many of those elements. Mm-hmm. I actually it was taking time code notes as I was watching it. The uh, telekinetic thing, the TK gene, is brought mm-hmm. up in, in at minute four and a half in the film. You show Paul Dano levitating a nickel in the in the car. Then they show another guy doing one in the club. And then, I'm getting the exact numbers here, it takes 75 minutes for the TK thing to show up again in the film. It's crazy. I didn't realize it was the, that big of a gap. The next time TK is, is said or seen at all is 75 minutes later with the kid. In which it becomes the core of the film, basically, for the till the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Joe says, oh, so he's a TKer, huh? You know? And suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, that thing. But it's it's amazing he had the confidence to know he didn't have to constantly bring it up and stuff. There's a great bit of voiceover where he says, we all expected superpowers, and instead we got, like, bozos trying to impress girls in bars, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so you kind of write it off at that point. But it's it's a beautiful thing because he understood that it's memorable enough that you're still going to know what he's talking about 75 minutes later. But at the same time, he wants you to forget about it because... He wants you to feel like awe. Um, another parallel kind of in a cautionary way was Dark Phoenix. You know, Looper does what Dark Phoenix was trying to do really well, which is like um, the Dark Phoenix X-Men story is supposed to be like, you know, your friend and ally who's like kind of troubled, has this amazing power, this kind of telekinetic psychic power that isn't quite in her control. Did you Did you see the new Dark Phoenix X-Men movie? Last. No, I saw the how badly it bombed, and I was like, "Well, I don't." I also haven't read the comic, and it's supposed to be one of the best X Men comics ever made, and so my it's like one of the most beloved stories. So I was like, "Well, I'd rather just read the story and enjoy it in the good format." <laughs> um, I'll t- I'll say it's better than Apocalypse, um, but it's not it's not good. <laughs> but uh, any, but yeah, anyway, the it's it's a I was fascinated by how looper was doing all those all the same things and doing it so much better and in and half the time i think the problem with uh everybody in the x-men is starting to be it's like it's a uh marvel has the same problem everybody's the most powerful at everything like at various points they describe the hulk as like the most powerful being in the world like more powerful than an asgardian and more powerful than thanos and whatever but that never turns out to be true in the actual fights <laughs> like it's a it's a very murky thing where everybody has to be the best at everything and the most powerful and when you have the x-men which is a lot of psychic abilities and telekinetics and stuff then you know xavier is the most powerful ever oh except now there's this phoenix who's the most powerful ever and and you never really get a sense of it becomes the problem of why don't they just use that the most powerful person in every fight you know um to just solve everything right away uh it just seems like you know so so of course as a screenwriter or filmmaker you can't use them because they're way too powerful you know storm in the x-men is a you know literally a god and so they always give her like you know three minutes in every movie because it's just too much you know and marvel has this problem like with dr strange could like kind of literally do anything and you also have captain marvel who can kind of literally do anything it's and then your hulk is you know quote the most powerful being in the universe but then you have these titans and these gods and it's like after a certain point it's like like nobody can even get hurt in these fights well not to get too off track but that's actually what's been a lot of fun in the comic world right now is in the actual issues and books a lot of writers are taking different directions so like hulk has gone back to like you mentioned cronenberg earlier kind of this body horror monster that's like it's it's so bizarre and it's so good and the stakes are just completely different it's not about stopping the big baddie it's about like it's this like self-discovery story, but also the threats are not about destroying the world. It's more like threats to his existence. It's interesting. It's it's much more like horror uh, film. It's almost got this kind of a Frankenstein feel to it. It's really creepy. Yeah, I love that. And playing with the formula is so much more fun in some ways. No, definitely. It's it must be refreshing as hell for starters. Um, I, I have a theory that lower stakes are more emotional. Um, and you know the I think when when everybody's super powerful and it's always the universe at stake it you you kind of numb out, but like you know one one person trying to do one small thing or saving one person can can be much more moving and powerful um and so the low stakes of looper are like they just hit you a lot harder using the same motifs and the same kind of 
superpower kind of ethos. And uh, by scaling it down, you can get a lot of power out of it. So, And you still get your big baddie with the Rainmaker. Yeah, exactly. Who's off screen the entire time and everything. Really what it's working – I think what where your emotions are, you, you care about Emily Blunt and her child. You care about um, – you know, young Joe needs a re- kind of redemption arc, and he, and Bruce Willis and his wife are very moving too. You know, and so you have these personal relationships kind of driving it. I think it's a great lesson for for low budget filmmaking is that you can still get a lot of oomph and power. It doesn't need to feel like a compromise that you can't have a thousand soldiers crossing a hilltop with laser guns or whatever. If if you have you know human dynamics at the heart of of something, even with just as low tech as handguns. You can have something uh, really powerful, and I think the the trick that Ryan Johnson has been able to pull off over and over again is mashing up genres so that you can have these dynamics, but it doesn't feel hack. It doesn't it doesn't feel like you've seen it before because it's not just a western or it's not just a noir. He's found a completely new way of building a, a world um, using some of the genre conventions, but but not. Um, you know, not the literal tropes of it. Uh, it's a gr- it's a great model for um, anyone making a, a low budget film who's um, who wants to do something more commercial, uh, but you know, it doesn't need to be ham. Uh, what's the word? Like hamstrung by those limitations. Those limitations can actually make the film much more powerful if you if you ha- if you're if you put enough care into the screenwriting to make those those characters and, and those emotional relationships like drive the story, you know, like for instance, Bruce Willis being driven by his wife, the memory of his wife and that relationship is much more powerful than him being driven by say an ideological thing or even revenge, you know, which would be wife related or wife tangential, but it's, he's really seems to be driven by love, you know, and, and it makes him do horrible things, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true, and it's funny how that kind of lesson of it's not necessarily tying your hands, it's kind of providing rails, like good rail. I don't know, we always think of yeah. railroading a story and stuff, and we think of all these things, like even in video games, they railroad you, they railroad you, but sometimes that's kind of essential to a story, or it's essential to good creation. So I think in, in academia, right, my brief brush with academia, uh, I was a history major, and I had to write a 60-page thesis and all this stuff. And the thing is, you learn very quickly that it is so much harder to write a one-page paper than it is to write a 20-page paper. And on top of that, you learn that an interesting paper or book or whatever isn't, why did World War II start? What's more interesting is, what was the effect of the Norden bomb site on the Pacific campaign bombing runs. And what are the ethics of bombing runs? If we start debating whether or not you can actually zero in on a target. Ooh. Now you've got a very complicated branching off discussion point and you're confining yourself. You're not going to deal with Germany and Nazis. You're not going to be dealing so much with all the other fronts. You're very focused on a specific element of a specific thing. And that's when you can drill deep and get something of value. That's how you strike oil if we're going to take that metaphor too far. Yeah, no, it's, and, it's, think, and it's where you find the humanity in these large-scale things. Um, I'm, it, you made me think of Dunkirk, how the scale of Dunkirk mm. is at that human, you know, boots-on-the-ground level. And phenomenal in the air scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, boots in the plane. Uh, level. There you go. There you go. Boots on the boat. And All three times. Boots on the boat. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, that, that's a great uh, point. It's, it's... Yeah, choosing your scale of storytelling is is so fundamental, um, and uh, and that's why the the idea of um, say taking on a time travel, a you know hitman kind of thing. There's a lot of movies out there that are quite big budgeted that have car chases and train derailments and airplane crashes and stuff that you, you couldn't really do pract- on a practical level, but. Uh, but for independent filmmakers, you can look at a film like Looper and see that the that great characterizations and and really precise but minimal world building at the very beginning of the film can set up everything. Because once if once we leave the CBD, that CBD stuff is the first fifteen minutes. That movie is two hours long, and almost everything. I mean, the last hour is set in a house in a cornfield. You know, I mean, it's the lowest budget filmmaking ever. A bunch of scenes in his apartment. Yeah. A bunch of scenes in the office of the, of, um, 
what uh Jeff Daniel. The, the boss man the, the the guy from the future i mean they're all in just rooms i mean you you set deck it light it well a couple of neat props yeah yeah you can sell it and real basic effects like when when the kid levitates the guy who comes to investigate and stuff that shot one of the money shots is everything lifting off the floor and table all strings. They had like 18 people with holding a string that went to a pulley that went to the object in the room. And they did a countdown on three, and then they just all pulled at the same time. And everything just lifted off the table. So totally in-camera effect. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the blood exploding from his chest, too, was all in-camera, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> that kid was brutal, man. And it was crazy how, like, every time he reacted, it kept scaling up how strong he was in an interesting way. Because what I was taking away from that was it became clear, especially once you found out he was Rainmaker, that you're like, oh, we have no idea, like, the upper limits of this dude's power. And the fact that everyone is from the future going, like, this dude came out of nowhere, nobody knows who the hell he is, and he just murders everybody. <laughs> and it just sounds kind of almost this Jack the Rippery thing going on, like, oh, he's everywhere at once. Like, no, he's literally able to just rip people apart with his brain. He's just an unstoppable force. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Willis has that has a great line he's describing him and he says he came out of nowhere and he took over the city alone i mean literally alone and uh it's borderline it's 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 like the it's like the scene we were talking about when willow shows up and hits him with the bar in the head is that there's a the, the logical response is oh he must be a really strong tk right but they don't have that line because they don't want to give it away, you know. Because if you if you if that line was given at that point in the movie, which is what, 30, 40 minutes in, as soon as you see the kid lift anything, you're going to be immediately put it all together. But by by not having that the response, you it keeps the TK things it remains in the background. What what's really scary about the kid is is I mean he the power is sure, but it's how angry that kid looks. That face, that kid angry face is like fucking terrifying. <laughs> That's again where I got that Twilight Zone thing where he's going like, no, 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 no. Like he starts doing that. I'm like, oh, man, cornfield. Send him to the cornfield. Like, it's coming. <laughs> Here's a funny production note. Those were all sugarcane fields. They were shot in um, Napoleonville, uh, Louisiana, which is, uh, I guess, it's somewhere off the 10, about two-thirds of the way up to Baton Rouge. And um, all of those things were builds. The, the diner was built completely from scratch. Wow. They had locals showing up constantly every couple hours asking when the diner was going to be open for business because they were so excited to have a 24-hour diner <laughs> in their town. And they were all just completely crushed. And they were like, no, this is a thing. And as a funny side uh, note, that it still stands. And you can still go out and visit it. <laughs> so you can find it on Google Maps and stuff. Uh, it's that's funny yeah and uh oh and so the fields the, all, they shot in like i said january and everything was dead and brown so they they did they had a greensman create a fake layer across the fronts of the fields to make them look green from side views and then cgi'd and color corrected the the stuff to make it look green in when they were inside the fields and stuff um that's part of where that budget went they did a they had a lot of money to to spend on on detail like that expensive huh. detail yeah no kidding well i mean it's a funny in hindsight actually i just remembered that in this film he jo, young joe actually says like these fields are all dead anyway to her and she says no it's for seed next season you know because his first advice is to burn the field down you know right. so that they can see them everybody coming yeah so it's, it's an interesting thing like um where the money goes did you know looper was based on a short film i did not know that the 10 years it took him to make brick there was a moment where he and steve yedlin his his dp were getting really burned out and spending all their time chasing money and having these futile meetings he um and steve said you know what we got to do something creative we're just becoming guys in suits in meetings like um and so he wrote a five-page version of looper that consists of you know, the voiceover from the beginning, the first scene where the guy shows up, except that the first guy is the older version of himself. And mm -hmm. the guy punches him and runs. And then the rest of the, the next three minutes of it was a foot chase through the city. They did it just as a creative experiment. And I don't think they ever released the, the short. I mean, it's on Johnson's website, but 
they never sent it to festivals or whatever. But it was such a fundamentally good idea, just that nugget of that single loop and the idea of closing the loops and stuff. Yep. It's really meaty. You can you can imagine the movie right away from that premise. Yeah. It's it, it's funny seeing, like, not to get too off the rails here, but, like, it's funny when you see the number of movies that come from short films. It's actually not as many as you'd think, but sometimes the stories are very, you know, unlikely. So, obviously, one of the most famous examples recently was, um, oh, the drumming movie. Why am I blanking Whiplash. Whiplash, thank you. Um, and I just can't think of names today. But yeah, Whiplash is a great example. And another good hard sci-fi one I loved, I think they made the feature eventually. I haven't seen it, but I loved the short was Code 8. Uh, it was basically a X-Men meets uh, District 9. And basically people are starting to develop mutant powers, but they live below the poverty line. And there's like laws that don't allow them to use their powers in society. And so you immediately get this parallel to like illegal immigration, uh, migrant workers, the social, the kind of social pressures there. But it also has like hard sci-fi elements and kind of like in the beginning of this film, it has a pretty interesting cold open. That's a little more background, but like, you know, in the beginning of this, He's just standing there. A dude screams and he blows him away. I mean, it's like the opening scene of the movie, basically. And Code 8, it's like you see kind of a grainy – you see some footage of these police chasing a dude in a hood. And you're kind of getting like, oh, God, here we go. It's going to be a very – this is going to be touchy. And he turns around. It's a white kid. And all these policemen are pointing guns at him. And all of a sudden he lifts his hands up and all the rocks and everything start rising. And when he cocks his hand back, they all gun him down. And so it, like, immediately violently throws you into this world, starts kind of upending social mores. And a part of me is like, I'm sure the feature's good and all, but it was such a strong short film that I was like, I don't know. I kind of – I liked that package. Yeah. And Looper kind of is interesting in that he says this short film and immediately your mind's off to the races. You're like, oh, my God, what if you're encountering your future self? This whole – there's so many stories you could take it down. You're right. It's a – that's kind of a long-winded response, but it just immediately made me think of that film. No, no, that's great. It's a it's social allegory, basically. You know, I, great, yes. I think all yes. great sci-fi has some kind of allegorical power. Um, X Men has always been very powerful as a coming out terrible oh, yeah. and um, and being different and and so on. But it's it's also like District Nine. Um, you know, with the aliens, it was an apartheid. Uh, you know, parable in a way. But there's a kind of there's always been a very interesting sort of love-hate relationship with immigrants in this country. Um, you think about Polak jokes and so forth. And um, even in New Orleans, there, you know, if you look at the uh, massive uh, Sicilian immigration here in the early 20th century and stuff and, the, and how, like, the locals were taken aback by that. Um, I was born in Brazil. I mean, I wasn't even an American citizen until I was six or something. It's, it's a very... It's very interesting the love-hate relationship people have with with immigrants in um, the, in the sense that you know the country the country the economy needs them for all kinds of reasons but they also bring in these cultural um, creativity they bring in fresh perspective they bring in you know things that they've been doing in their homeland for generations that nobody's thought of in North America and suddenly it's a paradigm shifting you know uh, effect um, and you you get you can sense that kind of resentment um in the movie do the right thing for instance like all the the uh, mm. black residents of Bedsty really resent the korean grocer on the corner and there's there's a scene where the, the old men are like you know these guys been here 10 years they already own their own business like you know um and and it's a uh it's it's a it's a kind of a love-hate thing that that has you can easily imagine somebody with a kind of extra ability that gets them that maybe, you know, levitation, whatever, you can name your X-Men power, and how that would be handled by people who are both afraid of it and in awe of it at the same time. Um, and that's yeah. that, that question of um, what are they going to do with this power? Yeah. Or there's a parallel with, like, just the, all these generations of, like, super rich, um, you know, the child, the children of billionaires and stuff who are born into an incredible amount of, you know, economic leverage – and are they all going to end up being trash people like the Trump kids or are they going to end up, you know, doing something useful with that or, or not? I mean, it's it's a always comes down to a question of of ethics. And um, 
you know, and how they're raised and so forth. And it's it's a perennial question, of course, because generations just keep going going on. There's new children being born into different kinds of contexts all the time, and uh, using sci-fi, fantasy, um, comic books, and so forth to explore a lot of the sort of queasy power relationships that um, Western culture has with with all of these issues. I I would like to think we're we're slowly moving along, but then it's always seems like you know two steps forward, three steps back, and then suddenly five steps forward and then four steps back. It's like, yeah, it can, it's emotionally whiplashing, uh, watching the culture move along as it, as it handles all this stuff. Um, you know, the eighties had all these like death wish movies where the whole idea was to murder minorities and immigrants. I mean, one of the things I love about the early X-Men films and Marvel and stuff is how there's a constant refrain of how useful and powerful, other cultures can be in terms of, of helping things, yeah. but they, they all kind of get Americanized in the end. Um, it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird. Well, it's the question of like, okay, if you ask most Americans, whether you agree with them politically or not, right. Most people will say, yes, I value other cultures. Yes. America is multicultural. Yes. Like m- most people will, at least on a surface level say it is good to have other culture in our lives and culture is good. But the question isn't that. The question is whose culture, right? It's And that's when you start getting into murky, complicated conversations. And I think X-Men has always been, as you said, it's an allegory for the queer community. Like, it is an LGBT story through and through. And it becomes to the point where it's ingrained in law that they're not allowed to be who they are. I mean, this is a, there's no yeah. subtlety <laughs> to X-Men and the gay rights movement. <laughs> Can mutants get so, married? That's the next frontier. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, and even, even in, um, was it X-Men three, the angel one with his huge wings. I mean, it's like, it's just this whole, all the imagery, the, the, the I mean, X three has a lot of problems, but the, uh, the, you get the idea though. I mean, you're, you're dead on and it's, the question of culture and immigration, all that always, it really boils down to, well, who's the immigrant and what is their culture? And that's where things get interesting. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think there's a, there's some great New Orleans independent films to be made, taking a basic sci-fi premise, like uh, along the lines of Looper or, or um, X-Men or Code 8 and setting it in, you know, making it about, say, you know, the Creoles' relationship or the Sicilian community's relationship with the mainstream culture here, or at least, or even the uptown uh, founding father plantation set versus the downtown Treme set or, or whatever. There's a lot of interesting allegorical stuff to explore because New Orleans culture is so uh, specific and unique and it doesn't play out exactly the way it does in New York or Detroit or Chicago, you know? No, it's like until Plessy versus Ferguson, New Orleans basically did not operate on the same racial, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically under the same rules that the rest of the country did. Like our entire, not that it was necessarily better. The Code Noir has all kinds of huge problems, but it's that it, it's distinct though. Like the, you can argue about which form of segregation and removing of rights is worse than others but at the end of the day new orleans is very unique and different and it colors our culture in very unique ways that we still feel yeah absolutely yeah i I, as somebody who's sort of like racially ambiguous and and uh multi-ethnic i it's it's i always loved the that how in new orleans had something like eight or nine identifiable races in like written into law in the slave era which is which is fascinating because um i feel like in the modern america we kind of we really only think in terms of caucasians and african americans as the major binary and then there's oh yeah asians and hispanics and and whatever but even that is so it's so reductive um and creoles i mean like one of my favorite statistics about new orleans is that um we had this was the number one slave trading port in the world, but it was also had the highest population of freed people of color. Yeah. Simultaneously, you know, so that, I mean, that's a, we, it's a city of deep fundamental paradoxes, but also had a much, had a much wider rainbow of, of uh, racial identification. Um, and that's something I'd love, I'd love to explore or see explored in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
gr- grappling with New Orleans history in a allegorical context is is really interesting. I think in a way, but I, you know, that you know that T-shirt uh, that says uh, New Orleans so far behind we're ahead. You know, yeah. I'd love to see a movie about how <laughs> the idea of um, embracing people's multi ethnicities is could actually be a way forward in the future instead of the reductionist racial um, kind of profiling, you know? Yeah. It, it makes the imagination wonder like how that could be handled with a, with a simple sci-fi premise, say, or a code eight style or district nine uh, style approach. There's a lot of stories to be told. And I, I think on that note, we should start wrapping it up. Um, you are a uh, prolific uh, podcast hoster. Uh, t- tell me what you're working on. <laughs> yeah, man. So obviously with uh COVID right now, the sorry to date the episode, but filmmaking is taking a bit of a back seat. There's not a whole lot of production going on right now, but uh, I do have a business here in town with my good friend and business partner, Mickey Guidus. We are in depth media. Uh, we do shooting, editing, everything. We've done work with Randy before. Uh, I produce a couple of podcasts, Rumor Flies, which is urban legends and urban myths smashed together with a lot more comedy and we kind of think of it as somewhat like snopes meets mythbusters but a lot fewer degrees and uh we i really enjoy that show we've been doing that for several years now i think it's four years which is crazy to me yeah that show's awesome <clears throat> they, it do you uh is it international urban legends or is it local urban legends do you have a it's anything it can be it can be about food allergies it can be pregnancy myths it can be um emergency we did like a stats myths one about is it more likely to get struck by lightning than to win the lottery and but then we get like down and dirty into the numbers to make it more interesting or we'll find these urban legends like i don't know if you heard as a kid uh if you this is a little profane sorry but if you drink surge or mountain dew that it would make your genitals shrink whoa no that schoolyard myth that's like a classic schoolyard myth that we found out the drink has just been changing but we found examples of it from the early 60s it's like an old schoolyard myth. Just keep updating it for the newest beverage. <laughs> yeah, and so just funny stuff like that. Sometimes more serious stuff, sometimes more funny stuff. Jacks of Trades. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, have you done the uh, Mikey from the Life Cereal ads died from mixing uh, Pop Rocks and Pepsi? No, got to look at that one. No, that's 100% up our alley. Yeah, that was a big one going around in uh, southern New England when I was a kid. Oh, my God, that's amazing. And uh, we do a, a podcast called Jacks of Trades. It's a comic book review show. I didn't even read comics prior to that, but then I finally started reading them with my hosts. And now I like love comics. I'm so into it. And it's an amazing time to be reading comics and graphic novels right now. Uh, they do a really good deep dive of each one we read. And then the one I launched recently, it's more locally focused called We'll Be Right Back, The Future of Hospitality. I launched it with my sister and co-producer and our friend Barry, uh, who's a colleague and a uh, friend of ours as well. It's, yeah, it's been a really incredible project. We basically are interviewing people from all corners of the service industry, the nonprofit world, government, talking about basically charting a new path in the wake of COVID-19 with a particular focus on the hospitality industry. That's, I'm fascinated. Is hospi- do you consider hospitality industry the synonymous with service industry? That's, so I, one guy came on, I really liked his language. He calls it the nightlife economy. And I really think that's like a slightly, I mean, you can talk, obviously it's not all at night, but it kind of isn't, it's a somewhat encapsulating concept, but it gets tricky, right? Who is the gig economy? Are we talking about Uber drivers? Are we talking about, you know, there's, we're not super narrow in that regard, but we're very much focused on consumer packaged goods, food, bars, like really focused on the stuff that makes it to your plate and in your cups. Yeah, there's a, uh, I love nightlife economy because that's that's a wider umbrella, it seems to me, than hospitality per, per se, because, and service industry is a term that I've always used to include uh, artists, um, because mm. they're providing a service of a kind, especially gigging musicians sure. who are, rel- who need the bars and clubs and nightlife. I, nightlife economy really encompasses all of the hospitality hotels food and beverage but it also does the the club owners the bar backs the doormen and shouters and the the all the different people who are required to keep these these clubs going it's um it's that's fascinating well we're definitely finding our definition as we go it was it, it was it's very much focused on bars and restaurants but we we're we're a little flexed with that to be honest and i think uh you'll, you'll see the interviews themselves you know you can check them out but 
Yeah, it's been – I love podcasting. I love that you're doing one. I think New Orleans could always use more podcasts. Cool. Yeah, I was encouraged to do this. I was uh, – you know me. I always have a bunch of projects uh, kind of brewing. But this is – I've always wanted to sit down with um, folks like you and other filmmakers around the city. And people don't necessarily like talking about themselves so much. But we can, we all start to get chatty when we start sharing our – things we appreciate and love about the movies that have been made here. And so I look forward to a lot of conversations. I've already got the first eight episodes lined up and, uh, and uh, it's going to, it's all sectors and I'm, it's a very niche uh, the city in terms of the filmmaking thing. Cause there's no kind of central place or central organizing group or whatever. So reaching out to everybody, even finding contact info is has been um, exciting. We also have an attrition rate that's really high, which which means it's like important to try to capture people while we can. But I love this pandemic is a mess, and it's obviously uh, <laughs> so many downsides. There's no point in listing them. But the one upside is that we can we can always use this time to plan, write, do do the, do the creative work that we can do uh, by ourselves or over Skype and stuff. Keep it mano a mano and contained and screenwriting is is a huge part of that and i'm anything to encourage screenwriting and and more filmmaking that's that's what i'm all about um from everybody and anyone even people who aren't necessarily filmmakers but maybe want to try it or think about it or people who maybe have been writing in novels or comic books or whatever and want to move come into the filmmaking world i that's what this podcast is is here to do is to try to stimulate ideas and get people inspired and and thinking ahead to try to get get the silk purse out of the sozier to use an old timey expression um so thank you so much greg uh this has been awesome the central nola cinema will hopefully be uh out on a regular basis i haven't quite decided on the the time whatever but we've got a website up and um i guess there's going to be show notes um i also got to f- choose a hosting service i am really <laughs> in the embryonic stage of this but as a first episode <laughs> uh that, this has been super exciting and uh uh, thank you, man. A great choice, too. I love that movie. Thanks for having me on. Subscribe!